Hello, everyone. Welcome to day 18 of OT with DA. Welcome to Instagram Live. Welcome to YouTube. So glad that you could join us. We are making our way progressively, and I would even say rapidly, through our 75-day reading challenge. I mean, we're almost to day 20. Today's day 18. We're in chapter 17, and uh, we've got another great chapter in store for you. Um, I've had an amazing day today. I hope you've had a good day. Welcome to everybody that's signing on to Instagram Live. Good evening from the West. Hello, howdy from Chattanooga. Hello from Miami, Florida. All right. Hello, everyone. Let me know where you're signing on from. Jim says, good evening. <laughs> Somebody says it's going by fast. I agree. I mean, we're already well into what, like page 220, 230, chapter 17. Hello and blessings. All right, Bob says from Texas. Victor Mills, great to see you, brother, says New York. I know Cassandra's from New York. Another Texas. Toronto in the house. There we go. Kendra signing on. I know she's in Michigan. Uh, Hannah, Michigan. It was great talking to you on the phone today, by the way. Carl Lindsay, love you, brother. Great to see you signing in from California. Uh, there's a Red Bluff, California. Great to see you. Another California. Uh, loves, I can't, couldn't, couldn't quite read that one. Snowy, Michigan, Kentucky, Grand Junction, Colorado, New Jersey, Alabama. Hey, Sonora, California. I used to live there. Well, in Columbia, very close. Uh, Apison, I guess that's Tennessee. Nagoya? Is that Japan? Let me know if that's Japan. Okay, somebody says snowy Colorado, California, Atlanta, Georgia, Southeast Michigan, Atlanta. All right, welcome everybody. Virginia Beach. We are in the midst of our 75-day reading challenge, OT with DA. The OT part is the Old Testament. We're reading through a large part, reading, praying, studying, talking, dialoguing, journaling through a large part of the Old Testament. Let's see, what do we got? Fourth, Fort Worth, Texas, Shanghai, China. All right, Hollywood, Florida, Lake City, Florida. Okay, it is Japan. Nagoya, Japan. Thank you for joining us. Michelle says, Vegas. Somebody says they're buried in the snow in Ohio. Hey, we're buried in the snow here too, just south of Denver. Orlando, Florida. Orlando, Florida. <laughs> Welcome everybody, another California. So glad you're joining us. Uh, a few quick announcements. Okay, very important announcements. Um, number one is, as I've already mentioned, we're going to have a supplemental session this Saturday. It'll be our, be our third such supplemental session, and this one's going to be on issues of creation, evolution, uh, the flood, geology, etc. It's going to be with my longtime friend, Dr. Sean Pittman. If you have any questions that you would like to put to Dr. Pittman, we've already had lots of questions come in. You can put them either in the YouTube comments or in the Instagram comments, and I'll do my best to sort of aggregate the comments and then, um, you know, the questions and comments and sort of divide them up into, you know, topics. I, I texted Sean just today and he said, hey, it'd be great if you could get me a list of things that we're going to be talking about. So I told him I would have that list by Friday. Now, just a, a small warning on this. We are going to record that supplemental session at five o'clock my local time, but I'm not sure if we can go live. So I'll let you know if we can't go live, big apologies, but uh, you can be sure that by Saturday evening, it will be available on my YouTube channel. I'm going to try to pull it off live, but I don't think Sean has an Instagram account. 
So I have friends in the area who have Instagram accounts. And so I'm going to reach out to them, including my in-laws, if you're watching, uh, if you would be willing to go over there and sit next to Sean and let him use your Instagram account. Anyway, that's one thing. Number two is just a reminder to a reminder to continue to use the OT with DA hashtag. Uh, have really enjoyed the input, the comments, the artwork, especially. And by the way, if you're putting up on your Instagram account artwork uh, or just any post, any post at all that has to do with OT with DA, be sure to tag me on it and I'll put every single one of them on my story, right? So, so my story can be a kind of clearinghouse. I, I notice that lots of people are putting things up, but almost nobody's tagging me. I, I feel like I'm getting left out here. So if you're putting up anything that has to do with OT with DA on your story, um, by all means, tag me and then I'll post it to my story and then more and more people can get access to it. And hopefully uh, you'll even get some followers out of it. That would be great too. So uh, we've got a lot to talk about today. Another amazing chapter. Uh, I asked my wife last night, I said, because after every one when I'm uploading the videos and doing everything that I have to do here in the studio, I always call her and I say, hey, sweetie, uh, how did that one go? And uh, last night she said to me, you need to make them more punchy. Need, you need to make them more punchy. And I know what she means by that. By punchy, she means shorter. So we're going to pray. We're going to get into this. And by the grace of God, this one's going to be more punchy. Thank you, Violetta. All right, let's pray together. Father in heaven, bless us now as we continue our journey through the Old Testament. Father, we're still in the book of Genesis. And in many ways, we're right in the heart of Genesis. Here we are in chapters 28, 29, 30, 31. And uh, Lord, we're, we're just right in the middle of it, right in the thick of it. And what a story is the story of Jacob. Father, this story is in so many ways tragic and also simultaneously and strangely beautiful and also relatable. And so, Father, the prayer of my heart is that in all of the, this is a lot of material, but in all of the sort of data that's here, both in the biblical material and in Patriarchs and Prophets chapter 17, that you would bring together a, a coherent and beautiful, cohesive picture so that people could lay hold on what the tailor-made message is for them that your spirit is impressing upon them in their reading, in their studying, in their journaling, and in our conversation tonight. So be with us, we ask, in Jesus' name, amen. By the way, I just want to give a quick shout out to a longtime friend of mine, somebody who I knew even before I became a follower of Jesus, Christian Hoday. He often tunes in. I don't know if he's tuned in right now, but he was tuned in yesterday, and when we were going down the words, he put up the word exchange, and I was like, oh, exchange. I wish I, I, I wish I knew what that was about. I'd like to better understand. Well, it's so obvious. I don't know how I missed it. Christian texted me and said that Esau gave his birthright in exchange for that which was temporal and passing and, uh, you know, the immediacy of the moment. He wanted that porridge. And then Christian made this great point. He said, hey, there he is. Hey, Christian, I'm talking about you right now, brother. Love you so much. Um, he made this really great point. He said, hey, man, you were wearing a shirt that had the word exchange on it. Because last night I was wearing a Chicago music exchange shirt. And he said, man, this was the obvious word. And so big shout out to my friend Christian Hoday. Absolutely love him. And uh, I think the word exchange is an outstanding word. And I'm a little embarrassed that I missed it. So obvious superb, insightful word, and love you, brother, and love to your beautiful family as well. Okay, so today we're in chapter 17, titled Jacob's Flight and Exile, and this is a, this is a big chapter in the sense that 
it covers a lot of biblical material, right? So Genesis chapters 28, 29, 30, 31, and 32. Is that right? Yeah, 20, not 32. 28 to 31. 32 is Jacob's wrestling with the angel. We'll be there tomorrow night. Um, so yet yeah, a lot of material. And so what I did today was I read through the chapter first. I then went back and read through the biblical material, chapters 28 to 31 in Genesis. Then I went back and read the chapter. Then I went back and read some of the biblical material, and I was reminded that I have preached a number of sermons on these passages. And insights from those sermons and ideas that were just shooting at me. And so I've got like a dozen or more threads that I want to talk about, but I'm also under, you know, a command, an injunction from my wife to keep it punchy. So let's get right into this and let's keep it punchy. Um, what I'm going to do to set the tone here is I want to just I want to just read the first couple paragraphs. And I, I really like the way that Ellen White paints the picture here. And I'll just give you a heads up. What I did in the first three pages, I found myself writing the word felt. Felt. Not felt like the fabric, but he felt. I'm trying to tap into, and she does a great job. How was Jacob feeling in his exiled state? You know, he's a fugitive. He's fleeing. And she does a really great job of painting the sort of internal psychological picture of how Jacob was feeling. And then she does this really cool thing where she contrasts, this is awesome, how Jacob is feeling with how God relates to him. Okay, so watch for that in those opening paragraphs and pages. How he's feeling, is that an accurate reflection of how God relates to him? And we've already noted this in the Temptation and Fall chapter, where Adam and Eve flee because of the internal voice of shame and guilt. They believe inaccurately, mistakenly, that this is a uh, an accurate reflection of God's attitude toward them, God's disposition toward them. And so they're fleeing. This is key. They're not fleeing from God, right? Because if they knew at that moment what God was like and what God's attitude and disposition was toward them, they would be fleeing to God, not from God. And so what they're actually fleeing from is a caricature and a misrepresentation of what God actually is. And we get another little taste of that here where Jacob, because of his sin, because of his deception, because of his uh, you know, ill-advised taking of his mother's advice, uh, he's fleeing He's terrified. He's fearful. That's one of the major themes in this chapter, that Jacob is a fear-filled man. Um, so I just highlighted how he felt. And so let's read through this, and, and you'll see it. Um, just right there, paragraph 1, page 1, 222 in the Types and Symbols, 183 in the um, original. Did I pray already? I think I prayed. Here we go. Threatened with death by the wrath of Esau, Jacob went out from his father's home a fugitive. Okay? But he carried with him the father's blessing. Isaac had renewed to him the covenant promise and had bidden him as its inheritor to seek a wife of his mother's family in Mesopotamia. So this is right at the beginning of chapter uh, 28. And remember Mesopotamia, this is near in and around the area where Abram had originally left. Mesopotamia means the land between the rivers. And so you have the Tigris and the Euphrates River. It's some 500 miles away uh, in and around that figure from where Jacob was camped. And so he goes back as a fugitive, Isaac had renewed his covenant promise and had bidden him as its inheritor to seek a wife of his mother's family in Mesopotamia. Yet it was with deep, a deeply troubled heart, felt, that Jacob set out on his lonely journey, 
felt. With only his staff in his hand, he must travel hundreds of miles through a country inhabited by wild roving tribes. In his remorse and timidity, felt. He sought to avoid men, lest he should be traced by his angry brother. He feared that he had lost forever the blessing that God had purposed to give him, felt, and Satan was at hand to press temptations upon him. Just a couple quick observations. First of all, try to enter into the headspace of Jacob. I mean, he's terrified. Absolutely terrified. He's alone. He is under self-condemnation. He is afraid that his brother is going to track him and trace him. Do I need to remind you that Esau is, as the Bible says, a skillful hunter? So he is very much of the mind that a skillful hunter is going to be able to track him down, and that probably quickly. And so, you know, at every turn, at every bluff, at every plateau, in every forest, around every rock, he has this sense of doom. And when your anxiety is high and your fear is high, you're just on edge. You're just in a really bad way. And in that heightened emotional state, it's, it's impossible to sustain that level of sort of adrenaline rush. And we're going to see when he finally meets uh, Rachel, his future wife, at the well, he's just so overcome with emotion that he just grabs her, he weeps, and he, he kisses her. Not a romantic kiss, but a kiss of greeting and a kiss of just astonishment that he's made this journey. Every night sleeping, he's thinking, am I going to make it? And so God sees him in this fearful state, and he's going to give him a vision. But let's just enter into his mindset. Also notice this, he feared that he had lost forever the blessing that God had purposed to give him. That's the internal voice of condemnation. That's the internal voice of guilt. And a word about that. Sin very often causes us to catastrophize our mistakes and our bad decisions. We, we've done something we shouldn't have done. We've done, some, we've done something we said we wouldn't do. We've deceived. We've lusted. We've hurt. We've gossiped. We've cheated. We've lied. And the internal voice of condemnation can cause us to just you know, catastrophize the situation. We think, oh, that was it. That was the last one. Now I'm estranged from God. Now I'm a fugitive. God has abandoned me. And he fears here that he has lost forever the blessing that God has purposed to give him. Now, I want you to note that the very next thing she says after that is that Satan was at hand to press that thought into his mind. And so just let that be a lesson to you. If you have committed that sin, you've done something, you've said something, you've thought something, and all of a sudden that internal voice of guilt and condemnation comes to you, and you find yourself racked with fear, and the temptation is to catastrophize and just think, oh, that was it. That's the voice of the enemy. That is 100% the voice of the enemy. Yes, we should feel guilt for sin, and yes, we should feel sorrow, and yes, we should feel contrition and remorse, but to catastrophize, I mean, you're a sinner. Sinners sin. It's a thing that happens. You might have noticed. Right? And so when we, when we get too much in our own headspace and we think, oh no, that was it, that was the straw that broke the camel's back, God is going to show up in a really cool way in this story. Okay, we'll get there in just a second. Second paragraph, the evening of the second day found him far away from his father's tents, i.e. home. He felt, there it is again, felt that he was an outcast. And he knew that all this trouble had been brought upon him by his own wrong course. This isn't something that's been done to him. This is something that's been done by him. The darkness of despair felt pressed upon his soul, and he, he hardly dared to pray. Been there. Have you been there? Have you been in that dark, difficult, lonely, fearful place where you committed a sin, you did something you wish you hadn't done, you found yourself you know, in the, the darkness of addiction, and, and you're 
almost afraid to pray. You just think, I, I, I can't pray. How can I pray? Because praying is a holy thing and God is a holy God and I can't, I'm too dirty. I'm too sinful. I'm too, I can't pray. I've been there. I have felt that way. And years ago, I read this incredible statement from the pen of Ellen White where she said, and I'm paraphrasing here, she said, the moment that you feel the least like praying, the moment that you feel the, the most unworthy is the moment that you most should pray, right? And so now when I'm feeling that sort of internal voice of shame and guilt and sickness and loneliness and self-condemnation, and I think, I, I can't pray. That's, I say, oh, I have to pray. I, th this is the moment to pray because I feel like I can't. And so I just, I've been there, and, and I'm sure many of you have been there before in that dark place where you just feel that there's this giant chasm between you and the Creator. Now watch, this is just has the most glorious resolution. He hardly dared to pray. He was so utterly lonely that he felt the need of protection from God as he had never felt it before. Are you feeling this? Are you in this headspace? The fear, the anxiety, the trepidation, the uncertainty about the future, the guilt about the past. It's all a mess. It's a giant mess. Remember, his mother had said, oh, just go for a few days, you know, to your, to your father, uh, uh, to, to your Uncle Laban's place. A few days. First of all, you got to travel several hundred miles. And uh, not only is it not going to be a few days, he's never going to see his mother again. He doesn't now know that. Well, let's see what Christian says. To such I would say, do not draw back in despair. We shall often have to bow down and weep at the feet of Jesus because of our shortcomings and mistakes, but we are not to be discouraged. Amen. That's one of the greats there from Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing. Thank you, Christian. Okay, now here we go. Uh, with weeping and deep humiliation, felt, he confessed his sin and entreated for some evidence that he was not utterly forsaken. Felt. Have you ever felt utterly forsaken? I know I have. I know I have. Still, his burdened heart felt found no relief. Had He had lost all confidence in himself. Whoa, been there. He feared that the God of his fathers had cast him off, right? So those first, what, two paragraphs completely set the tone and set the stage psychologically. And then I want you to read the next two words, friends. I'm preaching. Look at the next two words. Circle them, underline them, highlight them, put a star by them. What are those two words? But God. But God. Just like Adam and Eve, Jacob is not fleeing from God's condemnation of him. He's not fleeing from the way that God relates to him or thinks about him. He's fleeing from his own internal voice of condemnation and guilt and fear and shame. But God. Friends, hallelujah. When we've, when we've said that, when we've done that, when we've thought that, when we didn't do that, and that catastrophic voice of self-condemnation and sin and loneliness and despair and fear presses its darkness upon us. And then when, when the, the enemy, Satan, is there to press it still further into our conscience, but God, but God, and friends, I want to say it this way, God makes his biggest promise when Jacob is at his lowest moment. Write that down. God is about ready to renew his biggest promise right? He's going to renew the very promise that was given to his grandfather, faithful, noble, kind Abraham. When Jacob's at his lowest, God is going to give him the biggest possible promise. But God did not forsake Jacob 
His mercy was still extended to his erring, distrustful servant. The Lord compassionately revealed just what Jacob need. Say it with me. A savior. Woo! He had sinned, but his heart was filled with gratitude as he saw revealed a way by which he could be restored to the favor of God. And all of this sets up the, the vision that Jacob has at Bethel, which is the vision of the ladder that extends all the way into the highest heavens and all the way down to earth. And, and this is very important. It says, and I'm reading here, um, let's see, all the way down, where does it say? It comes all the way down to earth. I thought I'd underline it. Maybe I didn't do it. The angels of God were sending, descending on it. He dreamed to be held a ladder that was set up on the earth. 2812. 2812. This is key. This is key. This is not a ladder that Jacob has to climb, that has to jump up to or climb up some other way to get to the ladder. No, the ladder, which we're going to learn, represents Jesus, comes all the way down to where Jacob is. And this is key. In fact, one of the things we're going to see in Exodus chapter 20 is that one of the laws that God is going to give to Moses and to the Israelites is this thing called the law of the altar. And one of the laws of the altar was that you were not allowed to build steps up to the altar. That's incredible. It's in Exodus chapter 20, after the Ten Commandments. He said, no, 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 no. If you're going to build an altar to me, to Yahweh, you can't build steps up to the altar. And the reason is we don't go up to the sacrifice the sacrifice comes down to us because the sacrifice is God himself, this infinite price that is paid for us. We don't climb up to something. It comes down to us, right? And so, so this ladder that comes all the way down, he sees that it just extends higher and still higher all the way into the highest heaven. And he senses that this is, you know, she describes it. She says it's a beautiful glittering ladder. And he just senses this is the voice of God to me. And this is the, the word of God to me, that he can come down even to me in my lowest place. When Jacob was at his lowest, God reiterates and renews the biggest promise. And let's just remind ourselves of what that promise is. I'm in verse 14, Genesis chapter 28, verse 14. Uh, actually, we'll pick it up in verse 13. And behold, Yahweh stood above the ladder and said, I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac, the land, there it is, on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Land and descendants. Land and descendants. That's the Abrahamic promise. Verse 14. Also to your descendants. They will also your descendants will be as the dust of the earth. They will spread abroad to the west and the east and the north and the south. And in you and in your offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is Genesis 12, 1 to 3. It is a complete recitation, a renewal of the Abrahamic promise. And this is not when he's at the height of his faithfulness and he's doing great and everything. No, God made a promise to Abraham when he was very faithful. And God makes the same promise here to Jacob when he's a failure. Because friends, God's promises are not dependent on our faithfulness or our faithlessness. God's promises are rock solid. The psalmist will say things like, the mountains may fade away and the sun may not shine, but the word of Yahweh endures forever right? Incredible. Verse 15, behold, I am with you. Underline it, mark it, highlight it. 2815, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Incredible. Now, just a couple quick things here. First of all, in verse 10, it says that when Jacob went out from Beersheba, 
and went toward Haran, he came to a certain place, a certain place. And here's what I want to say. There are no holy places, okay, on earth. There are no holy places. God is holy, and where God is, that is the certain place. That's the holy place. And this is a very important distinction. For example, when Moses is going to be at the burning bush, and God says, take your shoes off because the ground you're standing on is holy ground. Well, that ground wasn't holy the next day. And this is the temptation that we human beings have to to turn um, places where God has been into idols and icons. I don't want to be where God was. I want to be where God is, right? And so the reason that that place, that burning bush was sacred, the reason it was holy, this was just any ordinary place. If Jacob had decided to go another kilometer or two or three or four, and it had the exact same experience, that would have been the holy place. That would have been Bethel, the house of God. That would have been the certain place. Friends, we don't have to travel to a certain place, to a certain location, to some holy mountain or holy hill or holy location. God is holy, and every place that God is, is a holy place. That's why the most holy place is called the most holy place, because Yahweh dwelt there. And in fact, one of my favorite stories is in Luke chapter 19. I think it's Luke chapter 19. It's the story of Zacchaeus. And and Zacchaeus climbs up into a sycamore tree to see Jesus. And it says, when Jesus came to the place, the place, that was a holy place. It was a sacred place. It was the place. Why? Because Jesus was there. And this is a holy, sacred place. Your living room can be a sacred place. Your driveway can be a sacred place. Any place can be, this is a sacred place because God is here. Isn't that just great? I absolutely love this. All right, let's carry on. Um, So the promise is renewed. The very same elements of the Abrahamic promise are renewed. Now I'm on page 223, trying to keep it punchy. Uh, Bottom of page 223, 184 of the original. And I got to read this paragraph because it's incredible. It's absolutely amazing. And there's a punchline here that you have to see. It begins, the Lord knew, the Lord knew. Here we go. The Lord knew the evil influences that would surround Jacob and the perils to which he would be exposed. In mercy, he opened up the future before the repentant fugitive. Notice that we've already seen the word fugitive three times. Fugitive, fugitive, fugitive. She's also used the word exile and outcast. He's He is estranged from his home. He's a fugitive. He's a stranger in a strange land. Sure, this is the family of his mother, but he doesn't know these people. He doesn't know this land. And this is so cool. What God does is he opens the future before the repentant fugitive. Now, just watch how awesome this is. When we have failed, when we have fallen, when we have made a mess of it, do you know what God does? God shows up in our life if we are repentant and if we turn to him and we say, you know what? This place is as good as any other. I'm going to meet God right here in this place. This will be the very gate of heaven. This will be Bethel. And when we meet God there in contrition and in repentance, do you know what God does for us? He did the same thing for Elijah, by the way. When he found Elijah and he said, he said, Elijah, what are you doing out here? What are you doing here in this place? And, and then Elijah did the, He did this incredible thing. After Elijah had repented and after Elijah came to his senses, just like Jacob here repents and comes to his senses, the first thing that God does is he says, I've got big plans for you. This is so awesome, and it's so psychologically powerful that when we feel like a failure and we feel useless, God immediately, he did the same thing with Peter, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. When we feel that we could never again be used, 
God makes his biggest promise when we're at our lowest point, and then he says, yeah, 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 now that we got that out of the way, we're moving on to bigger and better things, and he paints a picture of your future. He shows you what can be, and when he shows us what can be, this inspires us. Now watch this, I gotta read the rest of it. In mercy, he opened up the future before the repentant fugitive that he might understand the divine purpose with reference to himself and be prepared to resist the temptations that would surely come to him when alone amid idolaters and scheming men, including but not limited to his own uncle Laban. There would be uh, ever before him the high standard at which he must aim. Ah, did you notice that? Not the high standard that he must achieve because he will fall short and fail, but the high standard at which he aims. And this is the point, friends. We have a goal. We aim for something. We shoot for something. And when we fall short, when we fail, when we make mistakes, God picks us up, dusts us off, and shows us that bright and glorious future again. This is the good news. The high standard at which we must aim and the knowledge that through him, the purpose of God was reaching its accomplishment would constantly, watch this, prompt him to faithfulness. And the word prompt there is so powerful. The word prompt there is awesome because what God's doing here is he's saying, Jacob, I've got big plans for you. Jacob, I've got a future for you. Look at this future that I have for you. And when he felt like an outcast and a fugitive and an exile, God paints this beautiful picture and watch this. God doesn't get Jacob to a place of less sin and more righteousness, of less faithlessness and more faithfulness by the voice of condemnation and guilt and you'd better or else. He gets him there by saying, look at this vision. Look at what can be. Look at what can be accomplished in you and through you in partnership with me. I am with you. I will not leave you. And when we realize, when we get outside of our own heads, when we get outside of our own navel-gazing, internal voices of condemnation and guilt, God casts this bigger, more beautiful vision for us, and this prompts us to faithfulness. It doesn't coerce us. It doesn't, it doesn't guilt us. It prompts us to a voluntary, happy, joyful faithfulness. Okay, absolutely beautiful. When we realize that we're a part of a bigger story, a bigger picture, and God paints that picture for us, now we're motivated by positivity, not by negativity. We're motivated to aim at something bigger and better than just succumbing to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, and wallowing in our own mire. I love this. I absolutely love this. This is great parenting. This is, this is just the way that, that good, psychologically sound motivations work. God paints the picture. He says, I believe in you, and look at what we're going to accomplish together. I am your God. In fact, in fact, in fact, watch this. The next day when Jacob wakes up from this vision, I'm in 2819, uh, 2818, then Jacob arose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put uh, at his head, because it was a pillow, not a particularly good one, I might add, and he set it up as a pillar, and he poured oil on top of it, and he called the name of that place Bethel, or the house of God right? The, the short of Elohim, Beth Elohim. Um, the name of the place had previously been Luz. Now watch verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow, and this is an if-then vow. Watch it. If, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then 
Yahweh will be my God. Now, this, this is really fascinating because the, the first sort of insight that this gives us is that the patriarchs are not yet fully understanding of the robust monotheism that their descendants will later understand. They know that Yahweh is a, a powerful God, that he's a big God, that he's an amazing God. He's the, he's the preeminent God in their family and in their tribe and in their clan. But this if-then statement of confidence, this, this, uh, this vow, there we go, this vow is predicated on if Yahweh does the things that I'm asking for here, food and clothing and brings me back to my father's house, then Yahweh will be my Elohim. And this alerts us to the fact that there were other competing gods in this, you know, polytheistic, pluralistic world. And Jacob here is saying, um, yeah, I think that Yahweh is going to be my God. If Yahweh does the things that I think he can do, I mean, he gave me that incredible vision, um, he will be my Elohim. Just like he was the God of my dad and the God of my granddad, now, just a quick little line about this. Rachel, when they finally leave Laban, remember, she steals some of her father's idols, which alerts us to the fact that even those that were inclined toward the worship of the true God still had the, the residue of idolatry and polytheism, right? Multiple gods. And so this is a little insight to the fact that there's not yet a robust understanding of a rigid, you know, Judeo-Christian monotheism. Yeah, if Yahweh does these things for me, then Yahweh will be my Elohim. Yahweh will be my God. Okay, so um, a couple of little, let me see if I don't want to skip over anything here. Um, she says that the latter is Jesus. The latter represents Jesus. Um, the appointed medium of communication. That's right in the middle of page 224, 187. Highlight that. The medium of communication. We've already talked about how Jesus is the Logos. All the way back in chapter 1, why was sin permitted? We noted that Jesus was not an angel going up. He was God coming down in sufficiently angelic form that Lucifer and the other angels thought that he was at least at some level angelic. Because to the angels, he says an angel, and to the humans, he says a human. He is the mo. how does she say it? He's the medium of communication. I love this. Absolutely amazing. He's the Logos. Uh, she says, Christ connects man in his weakness and helplessness with the source of infinite power. She makes the point that the, the plan of redemption was revealed to the patriarchs, but she says not fully. It was given in a mysterious, she calls it a mystic ladder. And this is true. I wrote this down here. God reveals the plan of redemption in symbols and in shadows. We've already noted this. With Abraham, it was a strange sacrifice, a smoking oven, a blazing torch. The near sacrifice of Isaac on Mount Moriah, Adam and Eve were given coats of skins. We have an indication uh, about the mysterious nature of the sacrificial system with Cain and Abel. So again, don't assume that these patriarchs are having the experience, anything like the experience that we're having, with the knowledge that we have of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John looking back into the incarnation of Jesus and understanding as we do now this incredibly robust monotheism and the incarnation in shadows and in symbols. We've already noted that the prophets themselves didn't fully comprehend the things that they wrote and the things that they saw because God's revealing them progressively, incrementally in types and symbols, if I may say so. Um, 
She uses words like mysterious. It was a part of the revelation. They unfolded to their understanding more and more. This is all in that same page. Okay, so he has this solemn sense that God has been with him. This is where he makes the dedication of, of, of Bethel. He sets up the pillar. He pours, pours the oil on it. And then he says, if Yahweh will do these things, then Yahweh will be my Elohim. All right, he then makes his way. Let me see. She talks about how he promises to give 10%, which I had to laugh. I actually wrote LOL in, in my notes. It just It's just so funny, right? Like, you're a fugitive, you're an outcast, you're afraid, you're fearful, you think you're totally forsaken and alienated from the promises of your father and grandfather. And then God comes through a mystic vision of an amazing ladder. You wake up, you're like, wow, this is the very house of God. This is the place. You pour oil on the stone, you set up an altar, and you're like, I'm going to give God 10%. <laughs> it's funny. What? I mean, it just sounds funny to me. In fact, I actually wrote LOL before I read what Ellen White says about it. And it just goes to show that her thinking, uh, we're on the same track there. Like, that's funny, right? God comes through, he rescues, he saves, he delivers, he promises land, descent. It's going to be, and, and, and Jacob's like, man, he's feeling really generous, really magnanimous. Man, I'm going to give Yahweh 10%. And that's how we should feel. I mean, how embarrassing. Let me just read you what Ellen White says. This is at the bottom of page 225, 188. But how small the estimate, how vain the endeavor to measure with mathematical rules, time, money, and love against so immeasurable a gift. Against, against excuse me, against a love so immeasurable and a gift of such inconceivable worth. Tithes for Christ, she says, oh, meager pittance shameful recompense for all that costs, for that which costs so much. From the cross of Calvary, Christ calls for an unreserved consecration. All that we have, all that we are should be devoted to God. Amen and amen. And I thought it was funny. I, I wonder if anybody else out there thought that was funny. Did you read that? And you're like, what? 10%? I mean, yeah. Anyway, not a particularly generous offering, for God who's just come through in this miraculous, visionary way, 10%. All right, we got a lot still to cover. Um, so then Jacob, you know, he shows up finally outside the gates of the city, and uh, very much like the experience of Abraham's servant, Eliezer, where Rebekah came out, um, he arrives there, and there's already some men there. And then I really like this point. I'm just going to quickly note it because I think it's funny. Um, the Bible says that there was a large stone. This is 29.2. A large stone was on the well's mouth. And I guess they did that to keep things from going down in the well or to keep it from being filled up or vandalized or whatever. And so they have this large stone and Jacob arrives there in the state of anxiety. But now he has this like relief because God has shown up and God has promised. He's no longer looking around, you know, every corner and, and every crag to see if, you know, Esau's on his tail because Yahweh has shown up and renewed the Abrahamic covenant and promise. He's energized. He's fired up. And right on time, a beautiful woman shows up. And uh, when the beautiful woman shows up, what does he do? I wrote LOL in my Bible here. Uh, verse 10. And it came to pass, 29.10, when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth 
and watered the flock of Laban and his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. This is just a release. There's just so much adrenaline. He's arrived. He's an emotional roller coaster. And when he when he sees this beautiful woman woman walking up, he gets what we used to call in in when I used to skateboard uh, quite a little bit. Two things would cause the skateboard crew or the skateboard community to try a little harder, to go a little bigger, to be a little more daring or a little more dangerous. A camera, and we called that camera courage, or a girl, and we called that chromosome courage, right? So if, if you were just hanging out with your boys at the ramp and having a good time, it was fun, it was great. But if somebody showed up with a video camera, it's on. It's just on, right? You're gonna do your best. Or maybe there's no camera, but some girls would show up at the ramp or some girls would show up at the skate spot. It was on now. And as soon as Jacob sees Leah come walking up, he's like, oh, I'll move the stone. Oh yeah, this, this heavy stone. He just like single-handedly moves the stone. And I just think it's cute. I think it's absolutely, I mean, he's like, oh yeah, uh, that stone's not too big for me. And, and with all of this adrenaline and this emotional release, he just moves the stone. She's no doubt impressed. And he just goes up to her, realizing that she's family, and he just throws his arms around her, gives her a kiss, which in the ancient Near Eastern tradition was just a, a, a greeting, but he's so overcome with emotion that he just weeps. Beautiful. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. There's so much beautiful in this story and so much ugly in this story that uh, it's relatable, it's amazing, it's, it's awesome. I, I really, really love this story. Great, great stuff. Okay. I like the way that Ellen White refers to him as a lonely footsore traveler. I underline that. Did you underline that? A lonely footsore traveler. I thought that was quite cute. Okay, so now we get into, and, and the chapter, frankly, the, the chapter does not go into detail, particularly. When you read the chapter, I mean, Ellen White spends like one, two whole pages talking about the nature of shepherding and what shepherds do, and then quoting a bunch of verses from the Old and the New Testaments about shepherding. It's really good Then she has a bunch of practical application, and then she does spend some time, of course, telling the story. But when you actually go through and read like 29 and 30 and then 31, there's a lot more detail in Scripture. She treats some of the high points, and she actually even passes over a few of the high points as well. Um, let's just note a few of them. So the first one is, and this is an important idea here, when Jacob finally gets to see his uncle Laban, so remember, this is his mother's brother. Uh, Beth, uh, what's his name? Bethuel, is that right? I, I don't remember if that's the name right offhand. I think it's Bethuel. So Bethuel is the father, and he has at least two children, Rebecca and Laban, okay? And so when he, he sees Laban, the thing that Laban says to him, I'm in 29.15, then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what will your wages be? And, and this is obviously purposeful. In, in Moses' telling of the story here, Laban presents as kind and generous and thoughtful and magnanimous. And hey, hey, I don't expect, because he saw that he was a skillful laborer and clearly a strong man, and he was willing to work. And so he said, hey, I don't expect you to work for free, man. No, 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 no. What are your wages? And that word wages comes up over and over and over and over again in chapters 29, 30, and 31. In fact, I have a sermon that I preach about this. One of the children of Leah, the fifth son of Leah, Issachar, that name literally means wages. 
So, so go back and read through 29, 30, and 31 and underline all of the places that the word wages occurs. And this narrative is introduced to us by Moses with reference to wages, right? Laban presents as fair and concerned and, oh, I don't expect you to work for free. You just name your price. You name your wages and I'll take good care of you. And uh, then there's this beautiful story that turns tragic and terrible where he sees the, the beautiful daughter, the younger daughter of Laban, Rachel, and he's like, well, I'll work seven years. It's amazing. He just launches into seven years. No negotiation, you know. I would have been like, I'll work for two years. And then he comes back with 10. And then I say, okay, how about four? And then he goes, now how about eight? And then we land somewhere around five or six. But, but Jacob was so smitten. He was just like, this girl's amazing. She's beautiful. And he wasn't particularly excited about going back to his homeland because he was still afraid of Esau. That's another major motif of this chapter that even up until, in fact, all the way into chapter 32 and into chapter 18 in Patriarchs and Prophets, he's a fear-filled man, a fear-filled man. And I'll come back to that in just a second. But anyway, he, he just goes straight in for the seven years. He sees Rachel. She's beautiful. And I love verse 20, 29, 20. It's one of the most beautiful romantic verses in the book of Genesis. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. Now, can we just observe that this is extremely different than his parents' experience? Remember his parents' experience? So Eliezer travels back to the same area, brings Rebecca to Isaac. Isaac takes one look at her and is like, she's amazing. They tell the tale of all the providential leadings. And then what does the text say? Yeah, he took her into the tent. I'm sure there was a party. I'm sure there was a ceremony. But the way the narrative is told is they wasted no time getting married. This is a whole different situation here. All right, this is an entirely different kettle of fish. It's like, I'll work for seven years. Seven years? Woo, that's a long time. That's a lot of love. And uh, he, and, and frankly, I think his poor negotiation is part of what Laban seizes. He, he seizes on Jacob's generosity and his willingness and his industriousness. I mean, and then he takes advantage of it. And this is one of the major themes of this narrative. And so the seven years and the, the taking advantage of happens right away. So after the seven years, they have a big feast, they have a big party, and uh, what, happens that, what happens is that Laban sends, not Rachel, the younger daughter, the one that, that Jacob was in love with, he sends Leah into the tent. Now, you and I might be saying, there's no way, no way this could actually have happened. Well, actually, it could have happened. Because first of all, we already know that the women are often wearing veils, heavy, sort of thick veils, because remember, what was Rebecca's response when she saw Isaac? Remember, she said, who, who, when she was riding on the camels, just as they were coming up to the camp of Abraham and Isaac, hey, who is that that's coming up? Oh, that's my master. Immediately throws on her veil. And so you could have had a, a ceremony in which a heavily veiled woman, particularly if she was willing, and she obviously is, Leah's willing to go along with the, uh, with the ruse here. They go into the tent. It's dark. She's covered in veils. Um... Jacob, no doubt, is fired up. He's getting, I mean, <laughs> fired up would be an understatement, right? Seven years of waiting, seven years of built up sexual energy and sexual tension and testosterone. I mean, he is ready to go. 
and they get in that tent and the veils come off and everything else comes off as quickly as possible. And, and before you know it, they're married, biblically married. He wakes up the next day and he looks not into the beautiful eyes of Rachel, but into the weak eyes of Leah, and he cannot believe what's happened. This then, of course, sets a tone for the rest of the story because clearly Leah, who you have to regard as a victim and a villain, she's both. She obviously is complicit in this deception, which is terrible and tragic, but no doubt it was under the significant urging and manipulation of her father. So Leah, it's really easy to feel terrible for everybody in this story. There's just this whole atmosphere of sadness in this story, so much of it. He's fled from his homeland, and now he comes, and he works for seven years. He's going to get taken advantage of. He marries you know, the wrong girl, and then the wrong girl is despised because she was complicit in the deception, and then he works seven more years, and he finally gets uh, Rachel, and then Rachel can't conceive, and then Laban takes further advantage, and then there's this tremendous antagonism between the sister wives. I mean, ah, and you, you just feel sad, especially just go read 29, 30, 31, and you just, ah, you just, it's like, it's like reality television. It's, it's terrible because the wives get into this this like competition about who can have children quicker and and Leah, the less desirable wife, is just having child after child after child. And then Rachel can't have any children. And so she finally pulls a Sarah and says, here, sleep with my maid. It's all a mess. And there's this fascinating little story where Reuben, Leah's firstborn, goes out and finds this thing called a mandrake, which was uh, like a kind of a large carrot parsnip type thing and were apparently quite tasty and were regarded as having... Um, perhaps mystical powers, perhaps even as an aphrodisiac. Leah, uh, you know, uh, Rachel sees that Reuben has these mandrakes and says, hey, I'll take some of those mandrakes. And then Leah says, yeah, yeah, I'll give you the mandrakes if you let me sleep with my husband. And then so Jacob comes back from working a long day and Leah comes up and says, hey, I purchased you for the night. You have to sleep with me because I purchased you with mandrakes. Then he sleeps with her and then she has another child. What? I mean, it's just all a hot mess. The whole thing is a giant hot mess. And here again, it's just so easy to see how nobody's the hero. You know, everybody's a mess. And, and they're all kind of villains in their own way. I mean, I mean, Laban is the, the biggest scoundrel of all. He's the biggest dirtbag in the story, for sure. But can't you just feel the pain? When, when, the, when the girls get into this naming competition, you can feel the pain here, the sadness here, the, the, I can't even imagine, n none of us can imagine this situation. Not one of us. Two sisters married to the same guy, one loved, one girl loved, one woman loved, the other wife despised, this one having children, this one not, naming their children in such a way to sort of get to the other one. Anyway, it's a hot mess. And through it all, this theme of wages wages, wages comes up. By the way, just a brief word, kind of a funny little point. In 3013, it says, then Leah said, I am happy for the daughters will call me blessed. So she called his name Asher. Asher is um, the second son of Jacob and the Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, okay? And calls the child Asher. Uh, Asher means happy. And my, my friend Christian Hoday that was tuned in at the beginning, I don't know if he's still there, but the one that was mentioned the exchange on my shirt, his word was exchange. 
One of his sons, he has two beautiful sons and an amazing wife. One of his sons is named Asher. And Christian is one of two friends that I have who has named a child Asher. In my last church, there were uh, dear friends there. Uh, Joel and uh, her name will come to me in a second. Starts with an M. Um, they had a child named Asher, and I said to both of them, I said to both of them, you should make your child's middle name Rick. Wouldn't that be a great middle name for somebody with the name Asher? Asher Rick. I'm sorry, terrible joke, dad joke, but I did ask that. I did say, hey, why not Rick as a name? And then I was thinking to myself, I said to Violetta, maybe we should have done that. That would have been kind of cool because my father's name, my father's first name is Richard. And so we could have named a son Asher and then Richard Asherick. So my son's name literally could have been Asherick Asherick. <laughs> I'm a total goon. Okay, I admit it. So um, this wages thing comes up again and again. And, and I only note that because I, I can't go too deep here. But one of the things that's on offer in this chapter, and I have a sermon that I preach about this, is that the wages of deception and duplicity always come back to us. And, and the whole story of Jacob being with Laban for 20 years in Mesopotamia is a story of him paying the wages, the terrible, sad, tragic wages of deception and duplicity right? We, we're all familiar with the passage, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. There's also a passage in, I thought I wrote it down here somewhere. I did. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 15, the way of the transgressor is hard. The way of the transgressor is hard, and, and people are kind of getting their comeuppance. They're, they're getting their wages, and uh, it's, a, it's a, a very important recurring theme in this chapter over and over again, and a reminder that the fifth child of Leah, Issachar, the name literally means wages. And uh, just as the narrative opens with wages, hey, you know, you're not going to work for free for me, Laban says, seemingly generous. Um, the, the narrative actually closes with this conflict between Jacob when he takes, he finally takes Rachel and Leah and his whole tribe and all of his flocks because he's become very wise, a capable, intelligent, wise husbandman with his flocks, and he's leaving because he's afraid. He literally says, I was afraid. Let me read you that. Uh, this is 3131. Then Jacob answered and said, because Laban says, hey, why didn't you let us know we could have thrown a feast and this is really uncool what you've done? And it was uncool. But what Jacob had done was uncool, and this is the wages of a bad relationship. Jacob behaves in a certain way, so, or excuse me, Laban behaves in a certain way, so Jacob behaves in a certain way in response. It's a mess. And so when he asks him, hey, why have you done this thing? This isn't right. He says, I could actually harm you. I could do bad things to you, but God actually appeared to me in a vision and told me to leave you alone. And Jacob's answer is so telling. This is in 3131. Then Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid. Because I was afraid, for I said, perhaps you would take your daughters from me by force. He has engendered distrust by the way he's dealt with them, even though Laban has been made significantly more wealthy because of the ingenuity and the hard work of his son-in-law. You get an insight here into the fact that ever since he fled, this is fascinating, ever since he fled from Esau's rage, Jacob's life has been largely defined by fear. 
He is a fear-filled man, right? He's afraid. And so when he asks him, why have you done this? Because I was afraid. Ellen White makes the point many times in this chapter. He was fearful. He was afraid. And unsurprisingly, in the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 32, in Patriarchs and Prophets 18, the night of wrestling, when God, and I'll get, I'll get to that tomorrow. I'll get to that tomorrow. Only to say that Jacob responds in the way that he responds because he's afraid. He's afraid. He's been afraid his whole life. Okay? Um, it's a terrible, tragic story. And uh, let's see. Oh, I, I think I was saying, I don't know if I got to this point. Um, the narrative opens with the conversation about wages. Hey, what do you want your wages to be? You're a relative. You can't work for free. And it closes where Jacob finally stands up for himself against his manipulative father-in-law, who's kept him for 20 years and became significantly enriched by his hard work and industriousness. He says to him, and I'm reading now in verse 41, thus I have been in your house 20 years. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times. So the narrative closes with this whole conversation about wages and I have a sermon, as I've mentioned, that I preach about this, where we get into the narrative structure here and clearly the idea of getting what's due, whether it's what's rightfully due in terms of you know, economic wages for employment or the wages of deceit and duplicity and manipulation, which is what happened with Rebecca and which is what happened with Jacob. Fascinating. I mean, there's just there's layers upon layers within this story that uh, we couldn't possibly do justice to all of it. Okay, just before we get into our rubric, let me just see if there's anything else here that I wanted to say. Check, 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 check. I wrote here that it's, it's, it's not hard, excuse me, it's hard for me to not feel a deep sadness for every person in this story, except Laban. <laughs> I've, I, there's no sorrow in my heart for him. He just comes off like a total dirtbag, total scoundrel, taking advantage of a situation, prostituting his daughters out for his own financial gain. I got no time for Laban. And I know the other day we were pretty hard on Lot and somebody said, oh, you're being hard on a righteous man. Um, I hope nobody's upset that I'm being kind of hard on Laban here. I, I can't, there's not an ounce of, of sadness in my heart for Laban, but I feel tremendous sadness for Jacob. I feel tremendous sadness for Rachel for Leah. Leah's maybe the greatest victim in the whole story. And then the children growing up in this divided and difficult home. I mean, it's a hot mess. And as I was reading through this, I just kept telling myself, don't just read read this through the eyes of theology or the eyes of historical interest. Put yourself into this situation and just realize how broken, how messy, how dysfunctional this situation is and how sad it is. It's just so totally sad. And um, insofar as it was possible, Jacob loved both of his wives. He loved Rachel more, of course, because that's the one that he moved the large stone for, right? That was the one who originally caught his eye. But I think insofar as it was possible, he also tried to love uh, Leah because he saw that she was a victim as well. She was both victim and villain. And we're all that way. We're all that way. I have a sermon that I preached years ago at Kingscliff Church called Echoes of Eve, where I talk about every one of us is simultaneously victim and villain, right? All of us. 
we often cast ourselves as the villain. Oh, I sinned. I committed a, a you know a lustful sin, a gossip sin, a financial sin. I'm the villain. I'm the bad guy. And we think God has cast us off. Yeah, but there's this other story that's equally true, and that is that even when we fall and when we fail, voluntarily and rebelliously, we are also a victim. And God doesn't only relate to us as if we're villains in the story. There is a sense in which we need to come to repentance and sin is not excused here, but God sees us for what we are and he comes to us in those lowest moments and he lifts us up again by casting this vision before us. Anyway, go check that sermon out. It's titled Echoes of Eve. I love the twin promises of I will be with you and I will not leave you. Um, just another quick line here, 231 of types and symbols, 231 types and symbols, right in the middle of the page, 193 of the original. Jacob would have left his crafty kinsman, Laban, long before, but for the fear of encountering Esau. So we have biblical and we have we have biblical evidence and evidence within the chapter that Jacob's one of his primary motivations, he was a fear-filled person. And the thought occurred to him many times in the 20 years, get out of here. This guy's a dirtbag. This guy's a manipulator. He's taking advantage of you and of his daughters. Get out of here. But the thing that largely kept him there was fear. He was afraid. And friends, I just want to speak to those of you that are afraid of something. I don't know what you're afraid of. It could be a financial situation. It could be a relational situation. It could be a health situation. We live in very fearful times. I mean, if the pandemic the global COVID-19 pandemic has shown us anything, it's that people can tip into fear. And I don't want to be unkind here, but, but people can tip even into irrational fear. And, and I'm not suggesting here that all fear related to this pandemic is irrational. I think there is some legitimate fear, particularly for certain people in certain demographics. But the point is, is that the line between rational fear and irrational fear almost doesn't matter. You, you, you can just... If people around you are afraid, most people will instinctively be afraid. In fact, just today I was listening to a podcast, and one of the things that a university just did, they're talking about basically, I don't know if you saw this, John Hop, Johns Hopkins report just came out about the pandemic, and they were saying that these lockdowns, these, these lockdowns basically did nothing to um, sort of moderate the, the damage and the, the death uh, that was a result of COVID. The lockdowns didn't help. But the reason that people locked down so much is that they were afraid and they did this fascinating experiment. Forget the university where they did it. Um, I don't think it was Johns Hopkins they were reporting. But anyway, the podcast was talking about this um, this very interesting experiment where they they took people through a haunted house. They did a, several different kind of experience, uh, experiments like this, but this one, they would take people through these haunted houses that had 17 different rooms, I think, and they would gauge their fear. They would later take sort of exit surveys. And here's what they found out. It's very interesting. They found out that the smaller the group, this is totally counterintuitive, the smaller the group that went through the haunted house, the less fear there was. The greatest fear was when there were large groups of people. And they also did an experiment with horror movies in a movie theater. The more people that are in the movie theater, the more fear there is. Because when people around you are afraid, you think, oh, I should also be afraid. And then you're instinctively afraid. And so we now live in a time where we have seen that, I would say, rational fear. There is some degree of rational fear, you know, a sickness, a, a respiratory illness. Okay, fair enough. 
but how rational fear can very easily tip and tilt over for many people into irrational fear and anxiety. And then I don't want to be unkind here, but literally people's brains have been broken. People's, people's thinking has been like corrupted and broken over this sort of collective response to the pandemic. We all, not all, but a lot, a lot of people so freaked out that people are finding it difficult now to get back into a normal rhythm of sort of de-escalation and down-regulating and being like, okay, it's going to be okay. So I don't know what it is you're facing, but I do know that fear and anxiety and mental illness and suicidality are all up because of the pandemic. So whatever fear you're facing can be a pandemic-related fear. It can be the fear of death. It can be a fear of financial ruin. It can be a fear of a broken marriage. Fear is a very real thing, and fear can be paralyzing. It can just, it can just paralyze us. And that's clearly what happens here with Jacob. He's paralyzed by fear. It occurs to him, hey, I should get out of here. I should go. This is unfair. This is you know manipulative. This is exploitative. I should get out of here. But fear keeps him in a bad situation. Fear keeps him there. And, and I've met women, unfortunately, who have stayed in really bad, unhelpful, unhelpful, abusive relationships because they're afraid of the unknown, right? It's the old saying, the devil they know is better than the devil they don't know. And they'd rather stay in a bad situation than face an unknown future, right? And these are all multifactorial, the reasons that our, our brains are complicated. And when we're under a state of continual sort of anxiety and uncertainty about the future, it creates this fear. And we think there's no escape. And especially if people around us are panicking, then we think, oh, I've got to panic too. And friends, it's into this. It's into this cacophony, this miasma, this this black hole of fear and, and confusion that God speaks peace. God speaks hope. The most Frequent, frequently repeated, the most oft-repeated command in all of Scripture is do not be afraid. This is rendered in various ways. Sometimes it's just fear not, do not be afraid. More than 400 times, God in Scripture, in both the Old and the New Testaments combined, more than 400 times, God says, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. I am with you. I will not leave you. Do not be afraid. It's a command. It's not just an invitation. It's not just an opportunity to feel a little better about a situation. God commands you not to be afraid. In fact, and I don't want to tread on anybody's toes here, but I'm going to say this. Fear and anxiety is a kind of lack of faith. It's a kind of, uh, my friend Ty Gibson would say, uh, it's a kind of functional atheism. Because when God commands us not to be afraid, and then we are afraid anyway, we're essentially saying with our actions and with our sort of, you know, emotional state that God's not there. God can't, God can't handle this. God doesn't got, got this. No, it's a, it's a poor use of one's imagination to be frightful about an uncertain future when we have a certain God, when we have a good God. When we have a benevolent God who became a human being and hung on Calvary's crooked tree, yes, the future is uncertain, but God's goodness is not uncertain. And so he doesn't just invite us. He doesn't just encourage us. He commands us, do not be afraid. Woo, I was preaching there, but I was just, the spirit of God just came upon me and I just felt impressed to say, 
that one of the major narratives here is that Jacob is a fear-filled man, and that fear keeps him in an unhealthy, manipulative, coercive situation, and will tap back into that fearful attitude and outlook tomorrow, and I'm not going to say any more. I'm not going to say any more about that, but God's command to you tonight is do not be afraid. God's got this. What's the worst that can happen to you? That's Jesus' point in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. What's the worst that can happen to you? You could die, and guess what? Jesus has conquered sin and death. It's going to be okay. Okay, I'm looking you right in the eye right now, and I'm telling you, I know this because I've read the book. It's going to be okay. God has got this. The very worst thing that can happen, death and pain and uncertainty, God has got all of that covered. And so God's command to you and his invitation, but it's also a command, is do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. All right, I think that's enough. I think that gets us through to the rubric. Um, trying to keep it punchy. Here we go. Here's the rubric. Um, the point, the person, the prayer, the practice, and the promise. Um, what's the point of this story? Here's what I wrote. To tell the story of Jacob the fugitive, the exile, the outcast, and to show repeatedly the wages of deception and duplicity. The way of the transgressor is hard, Proverbs 13, 15. And, of course, to continue the Abrahamic narrative and promise of land and descendants. Okay, I see somebody says their fear is functional atheism. I agree. I agree. Now, again, there, there is rational fear. There is rational fear. But a lifestyle of fear, an uninterrupted fear and anxiety about the future is a functional, is a, is a functional version of atheism. It's basically doubting that God's got this. God has got this. And I like the way my friend Ty Gibson says it. He says that worry and fear are a really poor use of your imagination. If you're going to use your imagination, well, then use it to think about a positive outcome, a good outcome. After all, you believe in a good God, an incredible God. And remember, when, when Jacob was at his most fearful, at his most afraid, at his most lonely, at his lowest point, God shows up, renews the, prom renews the promise, the Abrahamic promise of land and descendants, and what else does he do? He shows him a vision of the future of what can be so that, remember that great language there? So that Jacob would feel prompted to faithfulness, not driven to it by fear and shame and guilt and condemnation, but prompted to faithfulness. Man, I love that. And he says that we're to aim the high standard that we aim for. Woo! Okay, I'm preaching again. Okay, what do we learn about the person here? The person. Here's what I wrote. God longs to be God longs to be with his fearful, sinful, timid, and struggling people. His presence not only brings blessings, it is the greatest blessing. God's presence is the greatest present. Because think about how blessed Jacob is in this story, right? When he starts to figure out the ins and the outs of animal husbandry and the sheep and the goats and the speckled and the unspeckled, he starts thinking it through. And all of a sudden, he's becoming quite a a wealthy, knowledgeable person. And Laban, of course, is getting rich off of this, but, but so is Jacob. Jacob is benefiting. But here's the point. The greatest present, the greatest blessing, the greatest gift is God himself. And God wants to be with his struggling, timid, fearful, failing people. Right? Emmanuel, God with us. 
So that's what we learn about God. He's not put off. What did Adam and Eve? Adam and Eve are running, they're fleeing, they're hiding in the garden, and what does God do? He comes down, he pursues them. Not man in search of God, but God in search of man. He wants to be with us. In fact, I've preached a sermon years ago that you can basically summarize the entire Bible. If you're going to take one word, one idea, and just shrink it all down, condense the Bible down, distill it down to one overriding idea and word, one word for the Bible. You could say love. I would take that. But I love the word with, with, right? Because when we come to that grand climactic scene in Revelation 21 and 22, and John sees the new Jerusalem coming down from God and prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, Revelation 21 and 22, he says that the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and he will be their God and he will be with them. Three times he says, he's going to be with us. He's going to be with us. He's going to be with us. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them, that I may be with them. God wants to be with you. He wants to be with you. So great, so beautiful, so encouraging. Okay, how do we pray this chapter? Father, keep me from making life Excuse me, keep me from making life-altering bad decisions. Talked about this last night. Please, please, please stay with me and do not forsake me. Right? Like the old hymn. Pass me, how does it go? Pass me not, O gentle Savior. I'm not a very good singer. But pass me not, O gentle Savior, hear my humble cry. Why on others thou art calling? Do not pass me by. Okay? That's my prayer. God, don't leave me alone. I'll make a mess of it. I'll make a mess of it. Don't leave me. How do we practice this chapter? Well, how about this for starters? Have just one wife? That's a good practical application of this story. Don't marry two wives that are sisters. I'm doing that. Okay, check. Practical application, check. My wife has two sisters. Fortunately, they both have husbands. Hallelujah. I got one wife. One wife is plenty enough for me, and she's amazing, and I'm so blessed to have her. So have just one wife, for starters. How about this one? Think through the counsel I receive from others, especially if it doesn't sit right in my gut. Right? Because remember when, when Rebecca first came to Jacob and said, hey, I got this plan, we're going to do this. He's ah, the idea of deceiving his father, and he didn't, it didn't sit right with him. So if you're receiving counsel from other people, even if they're people that occupy positions of significance or seniority over you, leadership positions, could be familial or professional, and it just doesn't sit right, don't just take their counsel because they occupy a position. Think it through, because you could take some bad counsel, and it could lead to a life-altering bad situation. And so I, I want to be surrounded by a multitude of godly counsel counselors. Um. And then the promise. Well, the promise here is the very same promise that God gives to Jacob in chapter 28, verse 15. I am with you. I will not leave you. I am with you. I will not leave you. And with that, we go to our word. And I want to know uh, as we close uh, what your word was. And then I'll tell you what, what my word is. And um, I'll tell you about that in just a second. So let's see what you've selected here as your word. Okay, so Judy says cheated. Stefan says faithful. Denton says feelings. Jim says offerings. 
offerings. Oh, I like it. I like it. Presence, shepherd. Yeah, very good. There's that whole section on shepherd I didn't really go into. Hannah says ladder. Madeline says restored. They're going so quickly. Um, Bethel, great word. Very good word. Um, shelter. Ooh, Michelle, I really like that. Ladder, promises. I haven't seen my either of my two words. I go, I'm going back and forth between two words. I haven't seen either of them yet. Shepherd, faithful, broken, definitely. Fear, Karen says with. Roberto says prompt. Ooh, I like that, Roberto. Okay, there we go. Somebody said fugitive. That's one of the two words that is very important. I think that might end up being my word. Fear, journey, all committed. Yeah, that's a good word. He was definitely committed. Seven, seven, and then six more years. Fearless, prevail. They're going by so fast. Return, prevail, afraid, charged, deception, opposites. Okay, wages. That's my other word. I see Denise and fast track one. Yeah, man, I'm 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 right on the border of either fugitive or wages. Wages is the word that comes up far more in the in the biblical text, like Genesis chapters 28 to 31. I mean, wages is inescapable. Doesn't really come up in the patriarchs and prophets. Fugitive is, in fact, I'm going to choose that word just because it's 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 truer to the patriarchs and prophets, which is what we're reading through. And so my word is fugitive, which by the way, by the way, I'll just share something with you in a second. Let me look at a few more of these. Wages, wages, focus, afraid, good word. Terrible Terry. Why are you terrible, Terry? I don't think you're terrible. Rock. Uh, messy. Wits Messy says, uh, you like wages, good, nonviolent. Oh, offering of wages, Jim says. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Hannah's giving me permission to use both, but uh, I can't do that, Hannah. I can't violate my arbitrary rule that there can only be one word. Fugitive, ladder, blessing, consequences. Okay, now let me just share with you something very cool, and this is one of the reasons I'm going to go with fugitive. First of all, she uses the word fugitive several times, but just look at this. Did you? Did anybody else notice this? That the chapter opens with her talking about Jacob as a fugitive, right? Threatened, I'm reading the very first sentence. Threatened with death by the wrath of Esau, Jacob went out from his father's home a fugitive, but he carried with him the father's blessing. Fugitive, okay? Fugitive. And then she mentions it several times, um, the land whereon he lay as an exile and a fugitive. And then now, did you notice this? The chapter ends with her describing Jacob and his family as fugitives. Let me read that to you. Laban's absence afforded opportunity for departure. This is on page 231, 193 of the original. Laban's absence afforded opportunity for departure. The flocks and herds were speedily gathered and sent forward. And with his wives, children, and servants, Jacob crossed the Euphrates, urging his way toward Gilead on the borders of Canaan. After three days, Laban learned of their flight and set forth in pursuit, overtaking the company on the seventh day of their journey. He was hot with anger and bent on forcing them to return, which he did not doubt he could do. Since his band was much stronger, the fugitives indeed were in great peril. And so there is a, a symmetry to the word fugitives because the chapter opens with her describing Jacob as a fugitive by himself, lonely, fearful, outcast, but still clinging to the promise of Jacob's ladder, as we refer to it. And then the chapter closes with him and his you know, acquired wives and children and flocks and servants, no doubt, and, and maids 
uh, that were the attendants of his wives. Um, they're fugitives. And so that's my word, fugitives. Um, it, I think it really captures the, the chapter. I hope this was a blessing to you guys. Um, tomorrow is one of the great, great, great archetypal chapters in all of Scripture. I mean, there's just stories that even people that don't know uh, much about Scripture who aren't followers of God, many people know the story of Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord. And there is just so many great aspects to this story, layers upon layers of profundity and meaning. We'll be there tomorrow, same time, same place. God bless you all. Trying to keep it punchy. So let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. We lean into you. Cast out from our hearts, from our minds, from our imagination, fear. Father, you have promised us that perfect love casts out all fear. And so we receive that blessing right now. We claim that promise right now. I want to claim that promise for all of us, but especially for those who are particularly fearful or anxious about something or about the times in which we're living. Father, help us just to remember, you've got this. You've got this. And the promise is sure. I am with you. I will not leave you. Father, we receive that promise. And if you are with us, if you are with us, the God who tells us more than 400 times to not be afraid, not be afraid, not be afraid, not be afraid, if you are with us, we can go forward into the future, even with our failures and our follies and our fumbles and our hot mess. Father, you can be with us. You can still make and keep your promises to broken people, people like us. And so, Father, we're, we're, we're holding you to that promise. We're holding you to this incredible picture and vision that we see of you in the Old Testament. And we thank you in the powerful saving name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Amen.